When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of The Bookcase touches on the difficult subject of self-harm. Please, if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or worried about a friend or loved one, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 for free confidential emotional support 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Hello, bookcasers. You can turn off the alert on your Alexa device telling you that it's Thursday and time for another episode of The Bookcase, because it is. I'm Charlie Gibson. Yes, you haven't slept for days awaiting this moment. I am Kate Gibson, and it is good to have you back or with us for the first time. Either way, we're happy to have you listening. Indeed. I drove 13 hours yesterday, Kate, to get from one city to another. I don't know at this point which is which. I'm a little punch drunk, so I apologize for that in advance. Today's author, Sloane Crosley. She has written, uh, I think, one novel and a number of essay books, and they're quite funny. But this book, while it's certainly amusing, is a bit more serious, and it's called Grief is for People, just out. You know, when I looked at that title, I thought, oh, Lord, this is another self-help book telling you how to deal with grief. But it's not that. It's a lot more than that. And I think that's what makes it so compelling. I think so too. It is, as you say, a departure from her previous works in the sense that I think up until this point, she has largely been a humorist. Her most famous book of essays, I was told there'd be cake. I've also read her novel, Cult Classic. She's a very funny writer, a very dry. I hesitate to use the word cynical because I think that has a negative connotation, although I am a cynic and I embrace it wholly. I think of her (laughs) as a dry humorist. This book is a departure from that, but I don't want our listeners to think this book doesn't have humor. It has a lot of it, which is really interesting. In some ways, I was like you. I was like, oh, a memoir about a friend's suicide. Oh, yay. But it was funny and it was compelling and it was original and I liked her voice. I came at this book, I have, you know, and I'll I'll just say this before we start. I have a best friend. I have a best friend that I met my first day of college. And ever since then, the two of us have been a team. Kate and Tiffany has always been a thing. And if something ever happened to Tiffany, I'm not her wife. I'm not her sister. I'm not her daughter. I'm not her mother. I'm not sure what I would do with it. And this book, I think in some ways, she lost her best friend to suicide and she is lost as to what her script is in terms of how to mourn him. And I think this book is a beautiful tribute, but I think it's also a way for her to work out all of her feelings about where she is left when her best friend unexpectedly feels compelled to leave the world. And she does it beautifully. Yeah, it is a suicide. She didn't expect it, although, as you'll hear her say, there there might have been a sign or two. She had worked closely with him in the publishing business, actually. And she's dealing both with, I don't want to lose this sense of grief because this is so profound. If it begins to diminish this feeling of grief, am I in some way dishonoring him and our friendship? And then the idea that he committed suicide, when you die, she writes this, when you die by suicide, you die alone. Taking attendance seems a bit like splitting hairs, she writes. 
And yes, you laugh at that, but it's true. It's profound. And the idea, not only that she's lost him, but that he died alone. Did he just decide that morning? Had he known this was coming? Another thing she writes, everyone will be sad about this for a month, and then life will return to normal, somebody says to her. You'll see. But she doesn't want life to return to normal. She wants in some way to hold on to him. I feel like she feels like she has to honor him by torturing herself in mourning. And one of the most poignant things I think she says is she says, so the book takes place for a year after this death. And she says a year after he dies, anniversaries of suicides are funny things because you wake up knowing that a year ago, your friend woke up knowing that this was the day they were going to die. Yep. What was that day like for them? That had never occurred to me that anniversaries would hurt just for that reason that you would wake up and say, what were you thinking a year ago today? How sad were you a year ago today? And could I have helped? Could I have stopped it? Right. And as close as their friendship was, did I do something wrong that in effect gave him in his own mind permission to do this? Was there a friend, another friend that we could have introduced him to that might have prevented this? So it's both a uh, a memoir really about this wonderful friendship that she had with Russell. We never know his last name, but it's also a, about grief. And she organizes it, as you point out, the same way sort of that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her seminal work wrote about the seven stages of grief. Mm. And she writes about denial and bargaining, and anger, and depression, all of those things. As I say, this it, it scared me, oh God, this is going to be another self-help book, and it's not at all. And her writing is, is really wonderful. So grief is for people. And I should point out one other thing, and it only is proof that Kate's a whole lot smarter than I am. When I called Kate and said, I, but I don't agree with the title. Grief is not just for people. Other species mourn. I just came back from South Africa and we saw a lot of elephants and the guide told us, no, elephants mourn. And Kate said, no, you dummy. Uh, it's not the fact that only people grieve. It's that when you feel grief, it is for the loss of someone else. It is not for the loss of a thing. And as you pointed out, and as the book makes evident, she equates this to the fact that she was robbed a month before Russell committed suicide. And she wasn't grieving for the jewelry that she lost, but she contrasts the feeling of the lost jewelry to the lost friend. Anyway, enough about this. Our conversation with Sloan Crosley, it's really very interesting. And she is a wonderful spokesperson for her own book. So we should shut up and let her talk about Grief is for People. Sloan Crosley, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Your new book, Grief is for People, obviously... On the market, there are a lot of memoirs. There are a lot of memoirs about grief. So what I'm interested in is sort of what were you hoping to accomplish when you sat down to write this? And did you accomplish it? You know, when you first start writing something, you're not really trying to accomplish anything. You're just trying to get something out and you're, you know, hoping that it takes some sort of functional shape. But as I started writing and as I sort of proceeded, I really wanted to give people something that would perhaps save them from the self-help aisle a little bit that was tonally felt like me and felt more personal and feeling, you know, what we all feel as authors is that surely we can't be alone. So the books that are memoirs about grief that that exist that are very famous are are wonderful. I love them. You know, you think of the Joan Didion, Anne Patchett, Truth and Beauty, uh, Megan O'Rourke, but they are incredibly sort of somber and serious. And I think my humor, even throughout the grief I experienced, never went away. It in fact became 
a tool for understanding it. And I wanted to give that to other people. I'm wondering if what you wanted to do was pay tribute to your friend, Russell, that that was your primary goal, or whether you wanted to tell people this is what grief is like. Was there one of those that was predominant in your mind? I think while writing it, the former, and while editing it, maybe the latter. So while writing it, Russell, I mean, you really got it. Russell was my North Star. If there's a silent sort of phrase throughout the book as I was writing it, it was not so fast. Mm. You know, I'm not going to let him just go. And then as I was editing it, all the sort of truths, truths, I should know how to say that word, about grief (laughs) kind of emerged and I could find myself able to highlight them. You quote on page 81, you quote Natalia Ginsburg, who says, you cannot hope to console yourself by your grief by writing. You cannot deceive yourself by hoping for caresses and lullabies from your vocation. So when I read that quote, I think to myself, did writing this book make you feel better? I mean, now that you've done this, does that quote hold true for you? Right. Do I get the pot of gold at the end of the grief rainbow, which is catharsis? Uh, yes. Nope. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think that it's true for a lot of people and it's true for a lot of writing in general. I would say for you know aspiring writers, there is incredible value in writing drafts of things, in writing uh, journal entries, whatever it is. But if you've ever written an email and not sent it, you know that there's a huge difference between that and writing a poem or writing something you share with people. And if anything, I actually, this is going to probably be cause for concern, but I feel the reverse, which is that when you write something that really matters to you, you're sort of offering up a piece of your memory, especially if it's nonfiction or memoir, about that experience to be sort of cycled in this centrifuge of the public imagination indefinitely for as long as the public will have you. And it's weird. It actually keeps things going. But I think that it's worth it. You just have to decide the juice is worth a squeeze. You know, I'm using a lot of analogies right now. (laughs) But you know, you just have to decide that it's worth it. You say maybe one day in a world that looks reasonably enough like this one, you'll tell me why, I guess you're saying there. But for now, I must poke holes in all this curiosity so that I might breathe, so that I might get on with the second half of my life. I guess what I took from that is you're saying, I've got to put this down at some point. But if I do put it down, I'm losing you a little bit. You're getting further away from me. And I don't know if I can do both. Are you able to put it down in some way? Hmm. It's funny. It makes me, uh, I'm I'm pretty uh, bulletproof for the most part, but it always makes me emotional to, to hear anyone quote from the end of the book only because just almost practical reasons because it's it's logistical it's 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 the freshest you know <laughs> I'm the closest to it you know earlier in the book I talk about how by living I am by default leaving him and then as you say and later in the book I feel like I just have to accept that which is a different kind of acceptance than I think is meant by the traditional stages of grief I'm sort of accepting that I will always like extremely, I will always miss him. The story will always be a mystery. It will always be incredibly frustrating and incredibly sad. And there will always be a person truly missing. I mean, I really learned what it means to miss somebody in the literal sense where I'll sort of take a survey of my friends and it's not like I don't have them, but I think someone close is missing. Something is missing here when I want to share good news or bad news, you know? You organize the book, the parts of the book are the stages of grief, you know, bargaining and anger and depression. So I have two questions about that. One, when did you decide to organize the book that way? 
And two, did you do it ironically or did you find those stages of grief to be very true to your emotions? Or did you think that it's a trite way that people sort of compartmentalize grief? I'm interested. <laughs> well, I will, I will sort of work backwards and say that there's, for all of my poking fun at um, self-help tomes, whatever helps you is whatever helps you. You know, I mean, if you, there are things that bounce off my personal temperament, like a rubber ball. But that doesn't mean that they're useless and that doesn't mean they're not helpful for other people. So I don't think the stages are trite. I do think they have been largely debunked as being so orderly and being opaque and having these definite borders. You know, they switch around a little bit more and they never end. So there is a little bit of cheekiness in me employing them, you know, like depression. Here we go. You know, it's almost like an exasperated <laughs> kind of way of saying it. But to answer, like, oh, this old chestnut, you know. But to answer your question about when, I'm so happy you asked this. It was really the second section. So they're a little bit switched in the book, but the second section is bargaining. And during that section, two things overlapped. The bargaining about, you know, Russell can't be dead. Surely there's a way to get him back. And then the other part of this book that I haven't mentioned is that it starts with a, a different kind of bang, which is that I am burglarized. So in June uh, 2019, uh, someone came into my house while I was away for an hour and took all my jewelry. Uh, that's the <laughs> Cliff Notes version. <laughs> that's the quick version. <laughs> and then I was trying to get some of that jewelry back while Russell was still alive. And so I am actually trying to bargain because I do hunt down um, some of the jewelry without spoiling the book. My joke is always just don't mess with anyone who's freelance. We will find you. We will hunt you down and find you. <laughs> we have lots of lots of unstructured time. <laughs> so that idea of emotionally bargaining about the death of my friend and going through that stage of grief while also trying to find things on eBay, it was so, I mean, I don't feel um, too obnoxious as an author saying, I don't think anything has laid over like something thematic and something technical so perfectly in my own life as an author before that. And then all the stages of grief just sort of unfolded from there. I want to ask you a follow-up question to that, which is, when did you realize that that burglary, that the trauma of the burglary was going to be your entry point into this memoir? Like at what point were you like, aha, this is going to be the bookend that gets my story open? You know, I think it's from years of reading, from years of reading other people's mm -hmm. work, from years of reading certain short stories that I could name, uh, just off the top of my head, Lawns by Mona Simpson. There's a lot of tonal overlap with a story by Russell Banks called Sarah Cole, a type of love story. Mm -hmm. The different memoirs, you know, Joan Didion's memoir, you know, starting from this smaller point. And what's strange about this book is that for a short book, the smaller point is not so small. So it's not like saying, oh, I remember... You know, I was on the school bus when I was a kid and someone stole a pack of gum from me. And now I'm going to talk about my friend's suicide. The starting point <laughs> is a, a felony. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so, so I think it just always came very naturally that in a way, the book is both a corrective to being upset about the burglary and a sort of love letter to the permissiveness about being upset about whatever the heck you want to be upset about. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is true that you say that the miracle of life is not that we have it. It's that most of us wake up every day and agree to fight for it, to hold it in our arms, even when it squirms to get away. He, Russell seemed always to be so balanced and he seemed to be in such control the way you describe him. And it was a shock to me when I read in the book that he went one day and hung himself. Mm -hmm. 
What was it to you? The day that I found out he died, I was leaving my therapist's office on the Upper East Side where I had just finished discussing the sort of trauma and violation and frustration really of the burglary because I'm not a, a wealthy person, but all the anything my grandmother or my great grandmother had left me was, uh, was gone. And just sort of the symbol of that, the feeling that I was somehow living my life wrong because this had happened and going in circles about it. And then I was on the street when I got a phone call from his partner. Actually, I knew I got a call and I ignored it because I saw it was from uh, his home number. And I thought that's weird. And I knew something was wrong. And I instantly started to feel nauseous and I didn't know what was wrong. And so then I called his partner back who told me what happened. And I thanked him. I said I was sorry. I was out on the street. I threw up in a trash can. And I remember that's actually very strange because I think that that action, not to dwell on the vomit uh, for everyone's listening pleasure, but that action uh, is someone who knows what's going on. Do you know? And it might have been like a, my last glimpse for a long time of understanding that he was truly dead and that he was gone and and really the circumstances behind that. And really, I just remember thinking I shouldn't be on the street. I shouldn't be on the street. And then I just walked through the park. And as I say in the book, I just remember looking up at the trees and feeling like, you know, for most of us, where we go when we want to feel better is nature. When we want to feel dwarfed, we look at the stars or the trees or things that are older and bigger than us. I do remember having this thought of, I have finally hit a moment in life that is beyond your pay grade. I think time slows down, and I think most people have experienced, you know, I tried to articulate it in the book, what it's like. It's not that time stops. It's just it becomes incredibly out of reach, and you just watch everyone else on the street living their lives, and they just, the, the amount of privilege that you imbue them with because they're not going through this is just, it's very strange. I don't know if this is universal or if it's unique to the United States. We seem to have a script for mourning our parents. We have a script for mourning our children. That doesn't make it easy, by the way. I'm not implying any glibness with this. Our husbands, our wives, brothers, sisters, but we don't seem to have a script for our best friend. And I don't know that that's a universal thing. It's funny. My father and I talked about this yesterday. I have a best friend because, you know, dad, in some ways, mom is your best friend. You don't, and you have a gang of folks, but in terms of like, I met Tiffany and that was who I went through college with. Have you found, I guess I'll put this in the form of a question, which I should because I'm an interviewer. <laughs> I'm okay without um, it, with or without it. <laughs> have, you, <laughs> have you found a lot of people coming up to you going, yes, I have a best friend. It's like yes. that. I mean, have you found that to be universal? Yes. Well, I think that the issue is it's the nature of the, the loss where because you feel so robbed with a suicide in a way that you don't with other deaths. And I will piggyback on, on mm. your rejection of glibness. You know, loss is loss. Obviously, you empathize with anyone who's experienced it. I will say um, I'm not an expert, but I'm just going to venture to say that losing a child, if there was some sort of macabre contest, that wins. And I feel like with the friend thing, I just... I just started to discover this guilt where I felt like, do I have a right? I, we didn't have a business together. We don't have a property together. We don't have children together. And I just, maybe because of how people are, frankly, sorry, I'm all over the place with this answer, but 
maybe because of how people are on social media or how people try to glom onto mm-hmm. tragedy and say, oh, I was the closest to this. Mm-hmm. I was the closest to this person. This happened to me. Maybe I personally have such a rejection of that that I was so anxious or just antsy about overstepping. Mm-hmm about saying that I'm closer to this person than I was, mm. you know, mm. and I was not helped by what's out there in the world. Mm-hmm. So many grief groups, so many books that are, you know, for loss of a spouse, for loss of, you know, a cousin <laughs> or for someone who's died in all these different ways. And I just, I couldn't find, what if my friend died by suicide? You say that maybe you'd sort of hope that this book was going to be a catharsis, but you didn't really feel catharterized afterwards. <laughs> But I am interested as to what that moment was like to you when you finished. Mm. When you finished, what did you do? I cried my eyes out. Mm. Mm. I cried my eyes out because I felt I felt like this was keeping him with me. I wrote the lion's share of this book during the pandemic, which is, you know, a questionable choice. In some ways, I'm keeping another extra friend with me while I'm alone in my apartment in New York. And in some ways, I am prolonging the inevitable. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I finished it, and I thought, now I have to do this for real. I have to accept that he is gone for Mm -hmm. real. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what I mean. That's another version of the way that the catharsis didn't – it just sort of delayed the inevitable a little bit. But in some ways, I still don't accept it. And I've discovered, you know, grief – it's like a perfume, you know, and that it smells a little little different on everyone, Mm -hmm. you know. And and the way mine smells – Great segue. The way mine smells is that (laughs) in some days, I think I never got past denial. And I still think he's in the bathroom and he had a bad oyster. Mm. That's why he's been in the bathroom for a while. And he's going to come out at any minute. (laughs) And And that's, I used to think that was unhealthy. I think before I wrote the book. I thought that was a, a symbol that I hadn't moved past things and hadn't really accepted things. And now I think that's just how I will always be with this. And that's okay. Kate pointed out to me, first of all, Kate's a whole lot smarter than I am. And she reads a whole lot better than I do. And she said to me, Dad. She's nodding emphatically. <laughs> Dad, did you notice that parts one and two in the book are written in the present tense and parts three and four are written in the past tense? Did you... Sloan do this consciously? And does that have any implication of your lack of acceptance in the first couple of stages of grief? Wow. I sound like a politician filibustering when I say, well, I'm so happy you asked that, or that's an excellent question, but it it, it is. Um, (laughs) I think it did. It was this, there's a feeling when something first happens, it's very present, it's close. And then it just sort of, as you get perspective on it, the literal nature of perspective is that sort of moving farther away and seeing the dimensions to something. Then really the last section, it's more about who I'm speaking to. So the last section, uh, I'm speaking really directly to him and I hadn't done that yet. And that was my sort of way of looking him straight in the eye as I I left, you know, as as I shut the door on the book. But yeah, it's that arc of trying to put things in the past as much as I can. I wanted to ask you one last question before we let you go. What was the hardest part to write? When you sat down to write this, what was the part you really dreaded oh, writing? I say it in the book, actually. Well, there's two. Technically, the hardest part is there's a part where I go through uh, the major tragedies that have hit New York over the past couple of decades, going from 9-11, uh, Sandy, the blackout, just going through all these sort of things. 
and I do it in my goal is to do it in one paragraph, which there's just, so there's a little paragraph in there somewhere where I'm proud of technically that I ran through it so fast on purpose. But no, the hardest part, and I even say, there's a line where I say I'm hesitant to tell this part of the story, frankly, because one day I I might be compelled to read these words out loud, uh, which I was for the audiobook. So it was incredibly hard to get through the audiobook saying that line. And it's the part where Russell and I had dinner three days before he died. And he mentioned, uh, he made sort of a joke or he made a comment. I won't, I won't explain it exactly, but about suicide, about killing himself. And I just sort of passed it off as weird. I said, that's, that's weird or something like that. And that haunts me because it was so close to when he actually did die. And it's a lot of the frustration of the book is trying to go back and find signs and trying to accept responsibility, but also alleviate yourself of guilt. That's really hard when someone, when someone dies. There's a passage where you say, every time I meet somebody that you would have adored, I wondered if this was the friend that would have saved you. Was this the friend that you would have stuck around for? Was this the friend that would have talked you out of it? This book haunts me and it stays with me. Grief is for people. Sloan Crossley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. you guys have asked the, the, the most thoughtful questions and I, I absolutely appreciate it. It's like an honor to be read by you guys. So thank you. So again, many thanks, Sloan. We'll ask you to stand by. We have some rapid fire questions for you. When? Well, after this. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid-fire questions for Sloan Crosley. Dickens or Shakespeare? Dickens. Last book you bought, and did you pay full retail price? I did. It was uh, Vivian Gornick's Essays, and uh, I did pay full retail price at Three Lives Bookstore. Vote independent. (laughs) (laughs) Best English teacher professor you've ever had and why? Oh, Blanche Boyd, uh, who's a Southern writer. I had her as a professor in college, and... My first short story I wrote for her was this sort of shoot 'em up bloodbathy kind of short story. There was just a lot of just straight up murder in it. And she called me to her office afterwards. And I remember thinking, oh, she's going to, she's concerned. It's so good. She's going to call the police. <laughs> oh, with the hubris, hubris of youth. She slid, she's a great Southern accent, which I will now try to imitate, but she slid the paper across 
the table and she said, darling, someone up there gave you something, but you have no idea what to do with it. And then she taps the paper and she goes, this isn't it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) She goes, why don't you try writing like yourself? (laughs) Yeah. Do you prefer reading fiction or nonfiction? I do not have a preference. I do tend to uh, go against the grain of whatever I'm working on. So I will read fiction while I'm working on nonfiction and vice versa. What's easier, the first draft or the third rewrite? Third rewrite. Who says first draft? People say that? (laughs) Wow, I'd love to meet them. (laughs) Grief is for People is the name of the novel. And we talked a little bit about the validity of the title. And I think it's a great title that grief is for people and not for things. Although I just want to say, and I I think Sloan also makes this point beautifully. Sometimes when you lose something, especially if they belong to the person that we're mourning, it can feel like you've lost them all over again. So I don't want to denigrate people that feel that sadness a second time when they lose something. But grief is for people, I think illustrates that just beautifully. Yep. She says, my initial grief has colonized my entire personality. The missing is a constant. You can ignore grief. You can push it around your plate, but you can't give it away for sure. Anyway, an interesting book about the phenomenon of grief and a very wonderful tribute memoir to her friend, Russell. We have a bookstore this week, Kate Petoskey, Michigan, another seasonal town, but a bookstore with a a year-round clientele. Yes, and of such a romantic story, Jessalyn Norcross, who started working at the bookstore and fell in love with the owner's son. If that isn't a Hallmark movie, and they opened opened the book of love. And they bought the bookstore and they run it still. It is in Petoskey, Michigan. The name of the store is McLean and Eakin. It is, as I say, in Petoskey. And here is Jessalyn Norcross. Jessalyn Norcross of McLean and Eakin in Petoskey, Michigan. I got to start this interview with, I'm always fascinated by what causes people to be crazy enough, smart enough, brilliant enough, whatever, to follow their dream and open a bookstore. What what was it for you? I fell in love. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I had no aspirations of being a bookseller. I was an English major. I taught elementary school. I was going to get a job, you know, here teaching elementary school in Petoskey and Then I got a part-time job at the bookstore, which turned into a full-time job, and the owner's son was working there, and he and I fell in love and bought the store right after we got married, and that's kind of the the sticky sweet version. Oh, <laughs> she fell in yeah. love with book selling at the same mm-hmm. time she fell in love. It's a Hallmark yeah. movie. I love it. Did your husband have to talk you into it? And if so, how would he do it? Marrying him? Or... No, well, that too. That's between <laughs> that you too, and him. Right. I don't remember it being something that we even tossed around as a possibility of not doing. It was just what was, it was the most natural thing. It, it was what was going to happen. We have always worked together. We've never not known each other at work. And so that's what we talk, you know, we would talk about and we talk about books. And so it was just always a part of our life, I guess. I don't know how my husband became the driver of the household, but he did. And I don't know how he became the dishes doer of my household, but he did. We sort of specialize in different things. Do you find when you're doing the bookstore that you are like, I'm really good at that. So stay out of my lane. And you're really good at that. I'll stay out of your lane. Is that does that help too? Yes, 100%. It is exactly the same thing. 
my husband cooks, I should have a show on how not to cook. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's real. Uh, the one thing that we both have in common, though, is that when we're on the sales floor, it's like you flip a switch. And the mm-hmm. only thing we want to do is just infect people with the books that we love. It's like we have this desperate need to get the right books into the right hands. I mean, I have taken so many books out of people's hands because they'll come in asking for a particular book. You know, maybe they like classics, they like beautiful fiction or something like that. And then I see the book that they pick up and I think, no, 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 no. And, you know, I don't want them to get home and think, why did that stupid woman not tell me not to buy this book? You know, you're building this trust with people. And, that's the thing that he and I both do. And we navigate in that lane together seamlessly. You know, you can hear your spouse's voice differently than you hear anyone else. And I can hear him upstairs and I can I know exactly what book he's recommending or talking about. And I'll grab it and I'll bring it up so he doesn't have to go down the stairs. We have two floors on, in the <laughs> store. And he'll do the same thing. I'll turn around to go get the book that I was talking about. And he's there to hand it to me. Your website overwhelms me with your feeling about the staff. So if I were coming in for a job and meeting Jessalyn Norcross, interview me to find out whether I would qualify to be a bookseller at McLean and Aiken. Well, I don't do the interviewing, you see. I let Zach do that because he's much better at that. So the manager does that. He, uh, Zach is a professional at that because when I interview someone, I want to hire everyone. And I feel <laughs> terribly if, if, because... Once I've met them, I feel like they're my friends now. I used up their time. They came in that you know for the interview, and I feel I owe it to them to hire them. The kind of person that we're looking for reads. That level of trust that we build with the customer is not there if you don't read. Because if you're recommending something, and you don't have to have read every book, because we also listen to one another. So I can say yeah. to people... I haven't read this, but I know who has. And if you like Matt's taste, you're going to love this. But if you don't like Matt's taste, I would probably tell you to take this, you know, because the customers really get to know us. They come in and they specifically look for individuals' recommendations, which is the biggest honor. It's yeah. it's so personal. <laughs> books, books are so personal. I always like to end these with the opportunity for just, like I said in the interview, for you to sell me a book. What 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 book? Sell me a book. What do you love right now? Oh gosh, there are so many. So I'm I'm fresh off of a, of a vacation, and I finished Peter Heller's new book. I don't know if you've ever read him. He is one of my all time favorites. He wrote a book called The Last Ranger most recently. Mm-hmm. That is one of my. It's not my all time favorite of his. The Painter is my favorite, but Matt will say that Dog Stars is his favorite. We go back and forth. But his new book is called Burn. It comes out in August, I believe. It is brutally beautiful. I cried. I read it in one day. I read it from the time we got on the flight on the way home and in the car on the way home when Matt was trying to talk to me. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm 50 pages from the end, you know, and I just, I, I couldn't talk. And, you know, I, I finished it and I just like put it on my chest. I was like, oh, so wonderful. So Peter Heller is amazing. There's a new book coming out in March by Percival Everett called James, which is from Jim's perspective, from Huck Finn. It is stunning. It reads so fast. It's a big book, so I was a little intimidated because I don't always like to make that commitment. 
but the majority of it is dialogue. So it reads really, really fast. And I was completely captivated by that one. You have a newsletter. Yeah, you do. That has a very large subscription base, 11,000. Yes. 10,000, 11,000 people. You write that. What What do you write each week? We love it so much. We just try to keep it personal. And again, it's it's our customer base that's not here in the summer. They really like to read it because it keeps them in touch. You know, I'll talk about when it snows. I talk about when the shark goes up at the mini golf place because once they hang the shark, summer is really here. Mm. You know, just little things like that. And then we intersperse it with the book recommendations from the staff. So it's the closest people can get to being in the store when they're not here. Jessalyn Norcross, a pleasure. Yeah. The bookstore is McLean and Aiken. It can be found on Lake Street in Petoskey, Michigan. Worth a stop by winter or summer. You'll find... We would love to have you. Jessalyn and her husband there. And yeah. you'll, you'll put a good book in your hands. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. That was fun. Thank you so much for talking to us. The bookstore of love, as Kate says, and she romanticizes it. But I suspect they still want you to go in and spend $25 and buy a book. I just keep thinking about what would be like if you ran a bookstore with mom or if I ran a bookstore with David. You know, you'd put up the closed sign and then you'd hurl books at each other. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just have such admiration for anybody that can work with their spouse all day long. Exactly. Exactly. I, I've often said to your mother, if we were in the same business, we'd kill each other. Yeah. So I never wanted to go into education. She never wanted to go into media. I'd have been terrible at education. And well, I don't know what she'd have been like in the media, but I'll leave that go. <laughs> but but my daughter does really well. We haven't killed each other, have we? Not yet. Although I do have an urge now to throw a book at you because now I've just, you know, throw the metaphor <laughs> out there. Now I just, you know, want to get my throwing arm warmed up. I love love stories around book stories. How lovely yeah, is that? That's nice. That's it. Yeah. So stop by McLean and Eakin in Petoskey, Michigan, if you're ever in the neighborhood. On East Lake Street in Petoskey, Michigan. We'll remind you of the people who make this podcast possible, and then we will get a final coda. A nice one from Sloan Crosley. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Asal Esanapur is our producer. Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas-Baker at ABC Audio. When people tell you when you're working on something and people tell you that it is not working... 90% of the time, they're right, and you should listen to them. And when they tell you how to fix it, 90% of the time, they're wrong, and you should not listen to them. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.